Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today from my office in central Hong Kong as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum for April 20th through 26th. And today we will be discussing the 4th through 6th chapters of Mosiah. Well, I hope everyone's uh, surviving well enough as we continue in lockdown. Hong Kong remains in a decent situation, uh, easily able to go out and to go to restaurants um, and to have other social gatherings as well. Uh, Church is still not something that's happening. Uh, We haven't had church here in Hong Kong for It's been two and a half months already. Unbelievable. I mean, really, if you think about it, it's just incredible. We've gone so long uh, without being able to meet together um, as a people. Uh, In Hong Kong, it's been especially long. And uh, within the U.S., it's already been uh, at least a month as well. So really unbelievable situations, but uh, certainly grateful to have a prophet that guides us and has, uh, you know, really ahead of things happening uh, already was instigating a uh, more of a focus on a family and a home-centered church. Uh, and, and certainly this Come Follow Me program gives us a great opportunity to, uh, to make the gospel more, more personal, which is, which is how it should be, right? I mean, these church, our congregations and really the church body in general uh, is really just a vehicle to help us draw closer to Christ, but by no means the only way in which we draw closer to Christ. Uh, personal study, uh, prayer, uh, time with family, service to others are also uh, incredibly effective ways which are, which are still available uh, to us. But obviously we hope that uh, we can get back to uh, normal or at least get started on our, on our new normal um, sooner rather than later. Well, with uh, today's lesson, we will be discussing the four through six chapters the, of Messiah. And this is the second half of King Benjamin's uh, sermon. Last week, uh, we, we talked about the first half, and if you recall, he, he began, he just wanted to talk to his people. Uh, we know that this is not long before he passes, so we, we picture this elderly king, this incredible statesman who's uh, at certain times uh, been a warrior fighting on behalf of his people as they've been uh, attacked by Lamanites. Important to remember that his people are a, a combination of two different people, uh, the, uh, the, the Nephites that followed his father, um, Messiah, into what was essentially the wilderness away from the land of Nephi, and the Mulekites that they, that they ran into. And then those two people came together under King Messiah. Uh, there was contentions among them, though, uh, as we learn uh, in, in Words of Mormon. And so King Benjamin, uh, through a lot of effort, uh, has finally united his people, and then shortly before his passing, he gathers them together, wanting to give this, uh, you know, kind of almost similar to uh, Lehi's famous discourses uh, that he gave to his sons, who were, of course, fighting and had a hard time uh, coming together before he passes. So kind of the similar setting where you have this uh, paternal uh, figure in King Benjamin uh, giving his people some, some final words of wisdom from him. And uh, his words of wisdom, um, you know, very much focused on, uh, on Jesus Christ. He shares with them the vision uh, that he received that was given to him by an angel. That was, uh, that was uh, chapter 3 from last week, in which the angel teaches him further about Jesus Christ. But King Benjamin is not, um, you know, all, all rainbows and happiness by, by any means. Uh, you know, very much realistic. If you accept Christ, you're going to be blessed and things are going to be good. Uh, where if you don't accept him, and this is, you know, in verse 25 from chapter 3, uh, you'll be consigned to an awful view of your own 
uh, guilt and abominations, and you'll shrink from the presence of the Lord into a state of misery and endless torment. So again, it's not all, um, it's not all carrots. He's using some pretty big sticks as well, uh, you know, almost you know, warning his people of the, uh, of the unhappiness that awaits them should they choose to uh, reject the Savior and reject the gift of his atonement. And so uh, somewhat stern words from this great king, um, but, you know, you, you get the feeling that he's, in, he's uniquely positioned uh, to be able to deliver this message to his people because of his lifetime of, of love and of service that he's given to them, that they know him, they love him, they know that he loves them, uh, and so he's able to give this very stern fatherly message to them about the importance of accepting Jesus Christ and, and the happiness that comes if we do so and the potential unhappiness or dangers uh, that might befall us should we choose not to. And so after he recounts his vision, uh, moving on to chapter 4 as we begin this lesson now, um, he looks around and he sees that everyone has fallen to the earth out of the, out of the fear of the Lord. His, what he's not threatened them with, but he's, what he's warned them about um, is, is in some ways terrifying to them. Um, and so as a result of this, they've, they've fallen to the earth out of fear. Um, you know, it could be respect. Often I think we tend to dumb down the word fear, uh, interpret it to mean respect, uh, which in sometimes is absolutely appropriate. Uh, but in otherwise, fear might really just mean fear. Um, and so we need to, you know, recognize that uh, and, and think about our own reaction, I think. Uh, you know, when we hear about the threatenings uh, and the potential dangers of not accepting uh, the gospel and not accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior and not repenting and keeping the commandments and making the changes that the Savior pleads with us to make. As we think about not doing that or our own inabilities to do that, because we all make mistakes and while we do repent, we all continue to make mistakes. Uh, does that instill fear in us? Um, or have we, uh, in, you know, in some other ways come to either rationalize our own um, actions or, uh, you know, assume that God will be readily uh, willing to forgive us, which, of course, we believe he will uh, forgive us. But uh, certainly seeing ourselves in our own carnal state, um, there should be an element of fear to that. Uh, obviously, we should be motivated by love. Uh, to keep the commandments and desire to do what our Heavenly Father and our Savior want us to do. But there absolutely should be an element of, if we don't do it, there could be some unfortunate consequences that befall us, and there should be some fear that's, you know, at least part of the motivating factors that strives us to uh, want to uh, accept the gospel and, and drives us to gratitude and love for our sa Savior and our Heavenly Father, because without them, we would be um, you know, subject to, uh, you know, these unfortunate events that, that should cause fear to us. So, uh, again, it's not that we fear God and it's not that we necessarily fear our Savior, but we fear the consequences of not uh, doing what they ask us to do. And as a result, we feel gratitude um, for their love uh, for us and for what, they've, what they bless us with. With that, let's turn to, turn to verse 2. And they had viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. And they all cried aloud with one voice, saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ, that we may receive forgiveness of our sins, and our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created heaven and earth and all things, who shall come down among the children of men. So they view themselves in their own carnal state, in their own fallen state, this idea that they view themselves as being less than the dust of the earth. And later in, in the book of Helaman, uh, Mormon, in an editorial note in Helaman chapter 12, uh, elaborates on this concept. And it is that uh, the dust of the earth, this, this carnal world, it obeys God. Uh, it does exactly what God expects it to do. Uh, it it, it you know, it doesn't rebel. It doesn't have its own agency. Um, and so in that sense, because of our agency, we are in some ways less than the dust of the earth because 
The dust of the earth doesn't have the option of rebelling, but we do. The dust of the earth always does what God expects it to do, but we don't. We have our agency and we can rebel. Obviously, our agency is an incredible blessing and it was preserved for us uh, by God. But because of that, we need to realize that that can create shortcomings within us. And so we should uh, desire to make ourselves a more the type of beings that always follow the Lord and always keep his commandments. Not mindlessly, obviously, like the dust of the earth does, right? The, the dust of the earth is mindless. It's like a robot. Um, it's, it's just pure element uh, without, without spirit behind it to, to motivate it and give it agency. We, we, shouldn't, we don't want to be like the dust in that you know, robotic, mindless obedience, but we should still strive for obedience nonetheless. We should still strive to keep the commandments of God Again, out because we are motivated and we understand that by not doing so, we lose those protections that God has otherwise made possible to us. And then I love they, they pray to apply the atoning blood of Christ to receive forgiveness and to have their hearts uh, purified. So, so these are the things that they desire that they state in, in verse 2, uh, that they want to apply the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, beautiful uh, concept there. And, and of course, profound in the sense that Christ has not even come and suffered. So this atoning blood, which we associate with his bleeding uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, the suffering that he endured on the cross, you know, this is still 150 years away from even happening. Um, and 150 years is, you know, that's a long time. Who knows what's going to happen in the year of 2170? Uh, so this is 150 years in the future, but they're already pleading for the Lord to apply the atoning blood of Christ. And it should give us a sense of profoundness as to how infinite and how eternal the atonement of Jesus Christ is. That 150 years prior to it even happening, prior to the atonement even happening, uh, people are pleading with the Lord to apply his atoning blood. And this, uh, this idea of purifying our hearts uh, as well uh, reminds me of a, of a quote from a talk that uh, Elder Bednar gave in October 2007, which was called Clean Hands and a Pure Heart. And in it, he said, Repenting and coming unto Christ through the covenants and ordinances of salvation are prerequisite to and a preparation for being sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost and standing spotless before God at the last day. I now want to focus our attention upon the sanctifying influence of the Holy Ghost can be in our lives. We are commanded and instructed to so live that our fallen nature is changed through the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost. President Marion G. Romney taught that the baptism of fire by the Holy Ghost converts us from carnality to spirituality. It cleanses, heals, and purifies the soul. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, and water baptism are all preliminary and prerequisite to it, but the baptism of fire is the consummation. To receive this baptism of fire is to have one's garments washed in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. So interesting how, uh, as Elder Bednar teaches, and you know he's actually quoting uh, President Romney, the purifying blood of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ purifies our hearts through the Holy Ghost. And so you have this interesting way in which the atonement of Jesus Christ, the blood that He shed for us while he was suffering for our sins in the Garden of Gethsemane and upon the cross, the way that his blood purifies us is through the power and influence, the baptism of fire that comes from the Holy Ghost, a separate entity uh, of the Godhead. And it's interesting to think then how Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost work together. You know, as we think of the Godhead, so often, you know, we think about our Heavenly Father all the time, right? We can visualize a loving Father that's all-powerful, that loves us and wants us to be happy and wants us to return to Him. And we can visualize Jesus Christ, this all-powerful, this loving big brother who sacrifices for us so that we, His uh, younger siblings, can uh, return to our Father. 
you know, but we often forget and neglect, and it's hard because it's hard to visualize the Holy Ghost, this third member of the Godhead, who does not have a body uh, at the moment, um, but his influence and he and the way that he works with Christ in perfecting us and purifying us is powerful and very important. And according to uh, what the people of King Benjamin prayed for, and according to the teachings of Elder Bednar and President Romney, the way in which the atoning blood of Jesus Christ purifies us is through the influence of the Holy Ghost. Uh, so it's important to keep that, that integral connection between the Savior and the Holy Ghost in mind that they work together to purify us and to, to cleanse us, uh, to make us better, to elevate us and to lift us so that we can prepare ourselves to return to the presence of the Father. Uh, very, very interesting which those worked, in the ways in which those work together. Verse 3. And it came to pass that after they had spoken these words, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins, and having peace of conscience because of the exceeding faith which they had in Jesus Christ, who should come according to the words which King Benjamin had spoken unto them. So their prayer in verse 2, in verse 3, we have evidence that it actually worked. That they prayed, and it came to pass that after they had spoken these words, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they were filled, and they received a remission of their sins. Uh, so uh, it worked. And, and, and why did it work? Because of their, it says, because of their exceeding faith in Christ, who hadn't even come yet. So again, we get a glimpse into this infinite nature, uh, infinite in, in time, this nature of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It hasn't even happened yet physically, but it already has effect upon the people. And the way that it has its effect is through the influence and the power of the Holy Ghost. Verses 6 and 7. And so, this is, so King Benjamin now continues uh, his address to his people, in, in which he says, I say unto you, if ye have come to a knowledge of the goodness of God and his massless power, and his wisdom and his patience and his long-suffering toward the children of men, and also the atonement which has been prepared from the foundation of the world, that thereby salvation might come to him that should put his trust in the Lord and should be diligent in keeping his commandments and continue in the faith even unto the end of his life. I mean the life of the mortal body. I say that this is the man who receiveth salvation through the atonement which was prepared from the foundation of the world for all mankind, which ever were since the fall of Adam, or who are, or whoever shall be, even unto the end of the world. So King Benjamin here gives us a, a three-step uh, program, if you will, that we have to go through if we are going to receive salvation through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And, and those three steps are highlighted in verse 6, uh, in which he says that we must uh, put our trust in the Lord, and we should be diligent in keeping his commandments, and then we have to continue in faith, uh, continuing all the way unto the end of this life. And if we will do those three things, he promises in verse 7, that these are the men and women that receive salvation. Uh, interesting note also in verse 6 where he talks about, uh, beginning he says, If ye have come to a knowledge of the goodness of God and his matchless power and his wisdom and his patience and long-suffering towards the children of men. Interesting use of the word uh, knowledge there. Because this knowledge is actually a manifestation of faith, if you will. And we'll talk about the difference between faith and, and knowledge uh, a little bit later in the context of King Benjamin's uh, speech. But, um, you know, but again, these things, the goodness of God and his matchless power and his wisdom and his patience and his long-suffering, you know, we, we believe that God is, has those things towards everyone. Right? He, he, he's good towards everyone. He has matchless power towards everyone. He has wisdom and he has patience and long-suffering towards everyone. But not everyone recognizes that. But not everyone realizes that God behaves that way towards us. And why is that? Because they don't have faith in him. Because they do not have eyes to see the ways in which God is 
long-suffering towards us, the way in which he exercises his matchless power on our behalf. And so the knowledge that King Benjamin is talking about here in verse 6 is actually a manifestation of faith. And as we exercise our faith to recognize God's role in our lives, then we obtain that knowledge. Then it becomes clear to us. Uh, but it's not, again, it's not the type of knowledge that we often think about that's, you know, that, that's a clear, obvious fact and that everyone in the world will be able to see it. The knowledge that King Benjamin is referring to here is actually faith. And so as we think about the relationship between faith and knowledge, knowledge of God or a testimony of God must start with faith, must start with the choice, with choosing to believe, choosing to recognize God's existence and choosing to recognize his relationship and the way in which he interacts with us. Okay. Uh, now verses 9 and 10. Believe in God, believe that he is, and that he created all things, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that he has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and in earth. And believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. And again, believe that ye must repent of your sins and forsake them. Humble yourselves before God and ask in sincerity of heart that he would forgive you. And now if you believe all these things, see that ye do them. So back then to this distinction between uh, knowledge and faith, we just talked about in verse 6, how this type of knowledge, the knowledge of God, must start with faith. But verse 9 I find to be actually a very fascinating and profound verse. In some ways, when you read it, it seems so obvious, right? Believe God, believe that he is, believe he created all things, both in heaven and earth, that he has all wisdom and all power, similar to as we were talking about in verse 6, both in heaven and in earth. And then here's the kicker. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. So having faith in God by definition, believing in God includes believing that there are things that we do not know. It means believing things that there are, it means believing that there are things that we do not understand and that we cannot comprehend. And I think as Latter-day Saints, we often struggle with that because we often have, we have such a culture that emphasizes a, a knowledge-based, knowledge-based testimonies which is good. I mean, we stand up in a testimony meeting and say, I know, I know, I know, I know these things. But sometimes I think as we do so, we, we don't take seriously the things that we don't know, if that makes sense. Sure, there are things that we know, and the way that we know them is through the Holy Ghost. The way that we know them is the way in which Verse 6 is talking about knowing things. It's first having faith, and then once we have faith, we can recognize their truthfulness. But we also have to recognize at the same time where the, while there are things that we do know, there are a lot of things that we do not know. There are things that simply are unknowable to us. And so often we like to take our concept of, of God, our concept of the plan of salvation, our understanding of the meaning behind certain things, and we like to ascribe certainty to those things. And there's comfort in doing so, right? There, there's psychological reasons why we like to do so. It's comfortable. Nobody likes to be in situations in which they don't know what's going on. But if we believe in God... We have to recognize that often we are in situations in which we don't know what's going on, in which certain things don't make sense. And while we often try to take our understanding of the plan of salvation and our understanding of God in order to fill in those gaps that don't make sense, I think part of what King Benjamin is telling us here in verse 9 is that we have to realize that there's limitations in doing so. And I think sometimes we get in trouble as members of the Church of Jesus Christ because we don't like to admit that there are some gaps in the things that we do not know. 
We don't like to admit that there are some areas in which we just have to throw up our hands and say, you know what, this doesn't make sense. This is a little bit strange. This is not consistent with either my understanding of the plan of salvation or the way in which I understand God works or the way in which uh, I understand the world works. Sometimes there's a disconnect between those things. And King Benjamin is telling us here, that's okay. You know, I'll take a very, very basic one that is very prevalent in society today, uh, and that has to do with homosexuality. You know, for a long time, we used to take the fact that there are individuals that are attracted to members of the same sex and try to, you know, fit that reality with or into the framework of our understanding of the plan of salvation, our understanding that we have a loving Heavenly Father, our understanding that gender is an, an eternal and unmutable aspect of our eternal uh, being, our eternal nature. And so because of that, we, we came up with different theories and different understandings and ways to try to understand uh, what is going on. How is it possible that there are individuals that are attracted to people of the same sex? But I think as we've come to understand more about this situation, and as we realize that there are good, good men and women out there who grew up in LDS homes or good Christian homes or, or other excellent homes in which you know, they learn to love other people, in which they learn to love God, in which they develop testimonies of the restored gospel or, or of, of other religions in which homosexuality is not consistent with, but they still end up being attracted to individuals of the same sex. Well, and how do you explain that? It's, it's not a choice that they made in every situation. It's just simply the way that they are. Did God make them a mistake? That's not a very appealing doctrine. Uh, are they choosing to be this way? Uh, clearly not in many situations. I think this is, it's, for me, it's just one area in which we just have to understand, throw up our hands and say, look, this is one area where I just choose to believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. I don't get it. I don't know yet. I hope one day I will get it. I hope one day I will understand how those pieces fit together. But right now in my mind, they don't fit together very well. So I can come up with a number of different theories. I can try to find some way to justify or to rationalize or to explain it away so that it makes sense. Or I can do what King Benjamin tells us to do and simply recognize that some things don't make sense sometimes. And that's okay. That's okay. We don't have to know everything. In fact, we need to recognize that we don't know everything. That's part of what faith is. Recognizing that we don't know everything. And that's hard to do again because we like certainty. We like to believe that we know everything or that we have access to, to knowledge about everything. But as King Benjamin teaches us, those that believe in God, those that believe that he is and he created all things and that he, he has all wisdom and power, we have to recognize that there's a gap between us then. We have God with all wisdom and power and then there's us below him. There's a gap and we have to just admit that gap. And some things we have to say, you know what, I don't know. I believe I'll figure it out later, I'll understand later, but right now, I can move forward without that knowledge. And again, that's a hard thing to do. I'm not saying that that's easy, uh, but it is critical. And that's what I believe King Benjamin, in part, uh, is teaching us to do here. Um, and then in verse 10, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the, the way in which you, you see King Benjamin heavy emphasis on repentance and on forgiveness. Uh, and in verse 10, that comes out, you must repent of your sins and forsake them. Uh, that's another essential part is that we recognize repentance isn't just, yeah, I'm sorry, I feel bad about it. It's we get rid of those sins. We forsake them. We leave them out of our lives. All right, let's move on to verses 11 and 12. And again, I say unto you, as I have said before, that as ye have come to the knowledge of the glory of God, 
Or if ye have known of his goodness, and have tasted of his love, and have received a remission of your sins, which causeth such exceedingly great joy in your souls, even so I would that ye should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God, and your own nothingness, and his goodness and longsuffering towards you unworthy creatures, and humble yourselves even in the depths of humility, calling on the name of the Lord daily, and standing steadfastly in the faith of that which is to come, which was spoken by the mouth of the angel. And behold, I say unto you, that if ye do this, ye shall always rejoice, and be filled with the love of God, and always retain a remission of your sins. And ye shall grow in the knowledge of the glory of him that created you, or in the knowledge of that which is just and true. So here he's getting back to this gap between us and Heavenly Father. And it's, and it's my belief that the more we know God, the closer that we draw to him, one of the effects of doing so is that we increasingly realize the magnitude of the gap between us and our Savior and our Heavenly Father. The closer we get to them, the more we realize just how big that gap is. And that makes sense, right? Because those that don't even believe in God don't even recognize that the gap exists. Otherwise, they would say, okay, big gap, big problem, I need salvation. I need somebody to save me. I need a Savior. And so, the close, so those that are furthest away from God don't even recognize that there is a gap and there is a need for salvation. But the closer we get to God, the more we realize that's not just a little gap, that's a huge gap. There's an enormous difference between where I am and where God is. Between where I am and where I want to be. And so then the great problem is, how do I overcome that gap? And the way you do that is at the end of verse 11, steadfastly in the faith of that which is to come. And what is that which is to come? Well, to the people of King Benjamin, that which is to come is the atonement of Jesus Christ. We have faith in the atonement, that that atonement will bridge the gap for us. That through the atonement of Jesus Christ, that gap which becomes increasingly obvious as we get closer to Christ, we also become increasingly aware of our dependence upon him. And we become increasingly aware of the glory, of the magnitude of Christ and what he has done for us. Because we become increasingly aware that it is only because of his atonement. It is never because of anything we do. It is not because of our own righteousness, our own goodness, our own willingness to repent, or how many times we go to the temple in a given month, or how, uh, you know, how much tithing we pay. It's, it's none of those things. Certainly not what calling we hold, or any of those things that we might associate with righteousness. The more righteous we are, the more we realize the size and the magnitude of that gap, and the more grateful we become for Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of a quote from uh, one, one of my uh, favorite talks uh, that uh, Elder Uchtdorf uh, gave um, in October 2011 called You Matter to Him. And he talked about how Moses had just had this incredible experience in which he uh, was presented with the Lord, which he uh, was in the presence of the Lord, and following which he recognized the enormous gap between him and God. And then Elder Uchtdorf on that said this, This is a paradox of man. Compared to God, man is nothing. Yet we are everything to God. While against the backdrop of infinite creation, we may appear to be nothing. We have a spark of eternal fire burning within our breasts. We have the incomprehensible promise of exaltation, worlds without end within our gap. And it is God's great desire to help us reach it. So this, this, I love this idea, this paradox of man, where on the one hand we realize how nothing we are. As the king, people of King Benjamin realized, we are less than the dust of the earth. Compared to God, we are nothing. But to God, we are everything. We are his children. And that incredible paradox uh, should have several effects in our life. 
First, it should draw us closer to God as we desire to understand him more deeply because we then recognize our own incredible potential. And as we draw closer to God and recognize how big that gap is, we should be increasingly grateful to God. And we should increase in our praises and our desire to keep his commandments and do what he would have us do because we realize how much he loves us. And because we realize that he gives us these commandments, not because he thinks we're bored, not because he thinks we don't uh, have anything to do, and not because he wants to give us a path to return to him. The path to returning to him is not keeping the commandments. The path to return to him is Jesus Christ, is the atonement, is the way in which we come together at one with him through the atonement of Jesus Christ. But those commandments he gives us, again, they're not for the purpose of us bridging the gap. Christ does that. Those commandments he gives us are because he loves us and he wants us to become better so that when that gap is bridged, we will feel comfortable in his presence. We will be able to return to him and we will be more like him than we otherwise would be and that we will be on the path of eternal progression, improving ourselves by obedience, by diligence, by faith in God our Father and in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost, and we will improve, and eventually we will progress and become like him through faith, through diligence on our part, and through uh, the love that is given to us by our Heavenly Father. The obvious analogy that we all confront in our lives is the gap between our parents. If you take a young baby, newborn, can't even walk, can't even talk, can't even eat, can't do anything, and compare that baby with their parents, the gap is unbelievable. But I don't believe it's as big a gap as between our Heavenly Father and us. But those loving parents, in part because they realize the fragility and the size of that gap. Those parents love, their, parents love their children, their babies so much, and will do anything to help them to grow and to develop. And they'll give them rules, and they'll give them structure, and they'll give them discipline, and they'll give them resources, give them all those things so that they can grow, and that they can progress, and that they can slowly bridge that gap so that one day they can become like their heavenly parents. Uh, and, and obviously that's, that's the goal for each of us. So uh, the paradox of man, as, Elder, as President Uchtdorf referred to it, the gap on the one hand and the realization that God loves us so much that he gave us all the resource and all the tools and all the commandments necessary so that we can progress to bridge that gap and return to his presence. Verses 16 through 18. And also ye yourselves will succor those that stand in need of your succor. Ye will administer of your substance unto him that standeth in need. And ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his, his petition to you in vain and turn him out to perish. Perhaps thou shalt say the man has brought upon himself this misery. Therefore I will stay my hand and will not give unto him of my food nor impart unto him of my substance that ye may not suffer for his punishments are just. But I say unto you, O man, whosoever doth this, the same hath great cause to repent. And except he repenteth of that which he hath done, he perisheth forever and hath no interest in the kingdom of God. Okay, so we've moved on and King Benjamin is now giving his famous uh, beggar analogy. Um, where he in implores his people to love one another and to serve each other. And if you see someone who's struggling, if you see someone for which there is a gap, in this case financially, between you and them, you don't just ignore that person. You don't just ignore that gap. You don't just say, well, it's his fault that he's not doing too well. No, if you have an obligation to do your part to try to bridge that gap, to try to support that person, to try to help them. And if you start to justify your own uh, unwillingness to serve them and to help them, well, you're, you're in big trouble. And according to being King Benjamin, um, uh, you have no interest in the kingdom of God. Interesting idea. No interest in the kingdom of God. Uh, two ways to interpret that. No interest. You can say, nope, not interested. Not a place that I want to be. 
Uh, okay, that's one way, but I, I, I don't think many people are like that. Another way of understanding interest is you can say, uh, think of it as economic interest, right? When you buy uh, stock in a company, you're, you're buying interest in that company. And as that company goes up, uh, your value goes up. Uh, if that company goes down, your, your investment also goes down. Um, but that, you know, economic interest, you're invested. You have a, a portion of it is yours. And I think that's the type of interest that King Benjamin is talking about here. So in other words, when we turn away beggars, when we are greedy with our own resources, when we are not willing to share the blessings that our Heavenly Father has given to us with those that are less fortunate than us in, in whatever aspect we're talking about, if we are unwilling to share our blessings that God has given to us, we are forfeiting our interest. We are forfeiting our share of the kingdom of God. And that tells us something about the kingdom of God. That tells us something about the celestial kingdom. It, it tells us that the celestial kingdom is a place in which we share, in which we support, in which we love and help each other. And that tells us how we should treat others around us here as we strive to build the kingdom of God on earth. Whether it's just desiring to make the world a better place or whether it's desiring to help to build Zion, to build the church of Jesus Christ. Either way, it starts with generosity. It starts with realizing that there are others out there that are less fortunate than us and we have to have a desire to help them. He continues in verse 19, and this is where he hits home. Uh, verses 19 and 20. For behold, are we not all beggars? Do we not all depend on the same being, even God, for all the substance which we have, for both food and raiment and for gold and for silver and for all the riches which we have of every kind? And behold, even at this time, you have been calling on his name and begging for a remission of your sins. And has he suffered that ye have begged in vain? Nay, he has poured out his spirit upon you and has caused that your heart should be filled with joy and has caused that your mouth should be stopped that ye could not find utterance. So exceedingly great was your joy. And that's where he ties it in, ties in this idea of the way that we treat others with the way that God treats us. It goes back to the gap. We have to remember that there is an enormous gap between us and God, and God will fill that gap if we accept him and if we accept his Christ and his atonement. Then as we view others and realize that there's gaps between them, often we are put in positions where we are in a better position vis-a-vis -vis other people. There is a gap, and it's to our advantage. And if we take advantages of those gaps and are not willing to do our part to help other people overcome those gaps, then how can we say that we have faith in God? Then how can we trust that God will bridge our gaps? Especially when we realize that the gap between us and another person, it's not something that we did. It's blessings from our loving God. It's because God has blessed us with more that the gap exists in the first place. So it's not even comparing apples to oranges here. God is our heavenly father. There's a gap between us of God and it's completely our fault. And it's completely because of the incredible glory and the unbelievable being that our Heavenly Father is. But the gap between us and other people, that's just happenstance. That's just dumb luck on our part. So if we love God and if we desire to uh, understand the plan of salvation and to show our gratitude to him and to have any chance of bridging that gap, if we have any interest in the kingdom of God, then we have to be generous with what God has given to us. Then we have to be willing to serve others. And we have to be, have a desire to help others bridge the gaps between us and them. Verse 26. And now for the sake of these things which I have spoken unto you, that is for the sake of retaining a remission of your sins from day to day, that ye may walk guiltless before God, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. Not surprisingly, according to King Benjamin now, 
if we want to retain a remission of our sins, if we want to close that gap, and if we want that gap to remain closed, then we have to do our part to close the gaps between us and other people. Otherwise, how could we expect a just God to close the gaps between us and him if we're not willing to close the gaps between other people? So in order, in order to retain a remission of our sins from day to day, we have to be out serving others. We have to look for opportunities to help and to serve and to bless those around us. Verse 29 and finally, I cannot tell you all the things whereby ye can commit sin, for there are diverse ways and means, even so many that I cannot number them. Verse 30, But this much I can tell you, that ye, if you do not watch yourselves and your thoughts and your words and your deeds and observe the commandments of God and continue in faith of what ye have heard concerning the coming of our Lord, even unto the end of your lives ye must perish. And now, O man, remember and perish not. All right, so there's an unlimited number of ways in which we sin because there's an unlimited number of uh, uh, thoughts and words and deeds in which we can commit. And any one of those can be sin. Then any of those sins creates that gap between us and God. And any time there is that gap between us and God, we are in a position where we are in need, where we become the beggars, where we beg God for a remission of our sins, as he says in verse 20. So we have to remain humble. We have to remember that no matter how good we are, because of our thoughts, because of our words, and because of our deeds, we are going to make mistakes and there is going to be a gap. And so because there's a gap, we have to beg God for remission of our sins, that he will close that gap. And in order to retain the remission of our sins, we have to serve others to try to close the gaps between those and us, uh, be, between us and those around us. Moving to chapter five, verses one and two. And now it came to pass that when King Benjamin had thus spoken to his people, he sent among them desiring to know of his people if they believed the words which he had spoken them. And they all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us. And also we know of their surety and truth because of the spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. All right, so the spirit, the Holy Ghost has changed their hearts. Just as we talked about earlier, that's what the Holy Ghost does. It works together with Jesus Christ and it's through the Holy Ghost that the atoning blood of Jesus Christ is applied to us. And the result is that our hearts are changed. Okay. And so the spirit had changed their hearts because they recognized the gap between them and God. And that they recognized that God, through the Holy Ghost, desires to fill that gap by changing their hearts. And so they fill their hearts with God they fill their hearts with a desire to serve him, to keep his commandments, and to serve those around him. So, you know, beautiful imagery going on here with, the, with these gaps and changes of hearts brought about by the Holy Ghost, by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, a lot of imagery to fill our minds with. And it's, we should ponder and think about these things think about how we fill this gap, how our hearts are changed. And it, of course, is through the Holy Ghost that our hearts are changed. And as we serve others, the Holy Ghost changes our hearts, drawing us closer to God, and in effect, filling those gaps that exist. Verse 5 then, once they've, uh, you know, going back in verse 2, uh, their hearts have changed so they have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Wow. That is an unbelievable change. And, but that's the change we should all be hoping for. I'll admit I am certainly not there. I cannot say that I have desire to do good continually and no more disposition to do evil. I'm afraid I'm not even close on that one. But that's what we should be working for. And that's the effect that the Holy Ghost will have in us over a lifetime as we serve others and as we draw closer to God. Uh, now verse 5. And we are willing to enter into a covenant with our God to do his will and to be obedient to his commandments in all things that he shall command us. 
all the remainder of our days that we may not bring upon ourselves a never-ending torment as has been spoken by the angel that we may not drink out of the cup of the wrath of God. So the result, once they realized that they had this gap and once they realized that the Holy Ghost was able to change their hearts and that the atonement of Christ fills that gap, what was their next reaction? We want to enter into a covenant. We want to memorialize these changes. We want something by which we can remember what has happened to us. We want some outward manifestation that shows this change. The change that has happened has been an internal one. It's their hearts has changed through the Holy Ghost. But it's, it's changed in a way that they want to outwardly, outwardly express the internal change which has happened to them. And that's what covenants do. That's why we are baptized. It's because we desire to have some way in which we express to God, in which we express to the entire world that we have changed, that we are different, that we are no longer what we used to be. And, you know, in some ways it's a little bit unfortunate that, uh, you know, I think for members of the church that grew up, certainly that grew up in the church, I'm that way. You know what happened when I was eight? Had my heart changed when I was eight? No. But, uh, you know, but I, I remember I had a desire to be baptized. I wanted to be baptized. Would it have been more meaningful if I was 18 or 28? Maybe in some ways it was. But at the same time, we also have to realize that baptism is simply the gate uh, by which we must enter into. And it's the path that we walk along after we've entered into the gate that is what changes our heart. So we might feel a temporary change of heart as the people did here that motivates us and desires us to have enter into covenants with God. But that's just the beginning. The actual changing of heart has to happen over a lifetime. And of course, baptism is only the first ordinance that we enter into, uh, as we'll talk about um, in a bit. Uh, Actually, as we'll talk about right now, verses 7 and 8. Uh, This is King Benjamin speaking again to them now after they've expressed their desire to enter into this covenant. And now because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. And under this head ye are made free. And there is no other head whereby ye can, may, ye can be made free. There is no other name given whereby salvation cometh. Therefore I would that ye should take upon you the name of Christ, all you that have entered into the covenant with God, that ye should be obedient unto the end of your lives. And so they enter into this covenant, or at least they express a desire to enter into it, and King Benjamin grants it. And he says, all right, here is the outward expression you take upon yourself the name of Christ. You are now his. And that's in part what we do when we are baptized. We enter into his family and we become uh, Christ's. We become spiritually begotten of him. You know, it harks back to uh, the Savior's conversation with Nicodemus about how you have to be born again of spirit in the water. And he says, well, can I climb back into my mother's womb? How do you be born again? Well, we are born again when we are spiritually begotten by Jesus Christ. We become his. And just as a child takes upon them the name that their parents gave them and also the name of their parents, so we too, when we become spiritually begotten of Christ, we take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. We become his. And when we're baptized, that's actually forward-looking because if you, you know, we talked about this before, as you think about the baptismal covenant uh, that we renew as we partake of the sacrament, the covenant and the sacrament is that we are in part willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. Now, Elder Bednar is taught that that willingness shows a looking forward to a future date and that future date in which we actually take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ is when we enter into the temple and when we receive the covenants of the temple. And those of you that have been endowed, as you think about it, you'll realize that there's a part in the endowment process in which you 
literally take upon yourself the name of Jesus Christ. And that is not something to be taken lightly. And, and that hit home to me in a somewhat uh, a, a comical, but in somewhat uh, you know, tragic experience that I had on my mission. Um, I was out one day, it was my first area, young missionary in southern Taiwan, uh, immature 19-year-old. And my companion and I came upon a, a scene that we thought, I especially thought was hilarious. I'm, I'm not a cat person. I'm allergic to cats, and so I, I don't like cats, I'll be honest. And what I saw was what looked like a cat had fallen asleep uh, underneath a steamroller, and then someone turned on the steamroller and drove over the thing. This cat was flat on the road in southern Taiwan. And my immature 19-year-old mind thought, that's funny, a flat cat. And so I gave, I gave my camera to my companion and I said, hey, take a picture of me. And I you know, kneeled down by this cat, gave the peace sign. It was pretty gross. Um, and then someone came up to us, a lady. She looked at me, looked at what I was doing. And then she looked down at the badge that I had on my chest. She said, and said something to the effect of, oh, Church of Jesus Christ? And then she walked away. And I felt about yay big at that point. <clears throat> because I realized, very poignantly at that time, I literally had the name of Jesus Christ upon me. But at that time, I was not acting in the way that a someone who has the name of Jesus Christ upon them should be acting. Not at all. And I was embarrassed. And I don't know what happened to that lady. Uh, I hope if I ever meet her again in some future date, uh, probably not in this world, that, uh, that she'll forgive me for my mistake and my immaturity and the way in which I failed to carry the name of Jesus Christ, which I at that time literally had over my heart. Um, but it obviously, you know, left a deep impression on me. 22 years later, I still remember it. But it taught me the importance, it reminded me how important it is that we take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ, that we walk through our lives as if the name Jesus Christ is printed right on our shirts, right on our chest for the entire world to see, and that our actions and the things that we do must be commiserate with someone who is acting on behalf of Jesus Christ. We have to make sure that our actions are worthy of a man or a woman who has taken upon themselves the name of Jesus Christ. Because that's what these people did here. That was the outward expression of their, the manifestation of their desire to enter into a covenant with Christ. They took upon themselves the name of Jesus Christ and going forward, that is what they called themselves. That is what we call ourselves as member of the Church of Jesus Christ. That is certainly part of the aspect of what President Nelson is getting at when he wants us to no longer refer to ourselves as Mormons. We're not Mormons. We're not disciples of Mormon. We are Christians. We are members of the Church of Jesus Christ because we take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. And salvation comes through Christ. That is the only source of salvation is King Benjamin teaches us here, there's no other, other name, there's no other head by which you can be saved other than through the name of Jesus Christ. And of course, to this people, uh, this process of a new name has, has, has even greater meaning because remember, these are two people coming together, two separate people coming together. And you can imagine the divisions that existed within the society. You had the descendants of Nephi and the descendants of Mulek coming together as a people and finally, King Benjamin gives them one name under which they can be united, and that name is the name of Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10. And it shall come to pass that whosoever doth this shall be found at the right hand of God, for he shall know the name by which he is called, for he shall be called by the name of Christ. And now it shall come to pass that whosoever shall not take upon him the name of Christ must be called by some other name. Therefore... He findeth himself on the left hand of God. So it's kind of black and white here. Either you take upon yourself the name of Christ and that is the name by which you are called. That is the way in which the world knows you. 
they look at you and see, and they say, there goes so-and-so, he's a disciple of Jesus Christ. There she goes, she is a Christian. She is claimed by Jesus Christ. And that's how we should all be acting every day. We should absolutely wear our religion on our sleeves, so to say. We never check our religion at the door. We are always Christians. We are always called by Jesus Christ because we know that is the only name by which salvation comes. Verse 15, Therefore I would that ye should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, that Christ the Lord omnipotent may seal you his, that you may be brought to heaven, that ye may have everlasting salvation and eternal life, through the wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and in earth, who is God above all. Amen. I love this idea that Christ seals us his, that we are sealed unto Christ because we are his. Uh, and I love the imagery of a seal, and I think it has two very, very powerful meanings. Um, a seal is, in some ways, uh, it, it's a, something that binds two things. It's the action of binding two things together, right? We would say two rings in a chain are sealed together. And we want to be sealed together uh, to Jesus Christ. Christ seals us to him that we become part of him. That we are uh, bound together in ways that cannot be broken and cannot be separated and certainly this notion of sealing is very important to us uh, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because that's what we do in temples. We seal each other together. In the marriage ceremony, we seal ourselves to our spouses. Our children are born in the covenant and they are sealed to us. And in those same sacred ceremonies, in those same um, ordinances and the covenants that we enter into, they also have the effect of sealing us to Jesus Christ. A uh, beautiful analogy that is there uh, in the sealing ceremony within the temple when you have the, the man and the woman kneeling on opposite sides of the altar. And then you have above them always you have a beautiful chandelier, a source of radiant light that represents Jesus Christ. And the way in which the man and the woman are sealed together is it's not just a two-way seal. It's a three-way seal with the man and the woman and Christ being on top, all sealed together under him. And so the only way in which we have an eternal family is in which in verse 15 states is that we are all sealed to Christ, sealed as his together. And that is the way in which families are bound together and sealed together through Jesus Christ. And the other idea behind a sealing, S-E-A-L, a sealing, is it's a seal of approval. It's a chop. It's uh, the idea of being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promises, which the Holy Ghost comes in and gives its seal of approval and says, this man or this woman has kept the commandments, has entered into covenants with Jesus Christ, and has kept those covenants, and as a part they are sealed to Christ. It has that seal, that chop of authority, of approval, and we are sealed to Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate goal, and not a surprise, that is what King Benjamin ends with. Our greatest desire in life should be for us to be sealed to our Savior, should be sealed to Him, bound together, integrably, unable to break that seal, that chain that we should desire to enter into with Christ. Because it is only as we enter into that sealing with our Savior that the other sealings that we enter into with our family have the ability to remain forever. Because it is only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, sanctified by the Holy Spirit of promise, that those sealings have efficacy and that we can be with our family with our spouses, with our children, with our Redeemer, and with our heavenly parents forever in the kingdom of God. Very quickly, chapter 6, after King Benjamin gives this incredible sermon, um, he takes the names of those that entered into the covenants, so they, they do proper record keeping. Um, 
And then in verse 3, very interesting, he, he calls uh, teachers and priests uh, in order to teach the people, and this is verse 6, that thereby they might hear and know the commandments of God and to stir them up in remembrance of the oath which they had made. And that is a part of the reason that we go to church. That's part of the reason that we have religion. Sometimes you might complain, oh, I hear the same things over and over in church. Yeah, you do. There's a good reason for that. We need to be reminded of it. Just as King Benjamin called teachers and priests to constantly remind his people of the covenants that they have made, we need to be reminded of the covenants we have made. We need to be reminded of our relationship with God. We need to be reminded of the covenants and the commandments that we, are to, that we have entered into and that we are to keep so that we can constantly be prove, improving, constantly be progressing, constantly be moving back to the presence of our Father in heaven. So, uh, and, and then after he does that, King Benjamin passes away, and now we move on from King Benjamin. Uh, only six chapters cover him, but he must have been an unbelievable man. Uh, I sincerely hope I have the chance to, to thank him uh, one day for this incredible discourse, uh, because he taught us so much about our relationship with God, about the gap that is there between us, and I hope that we will make it our goal in life to fill that gap by the atonement of Jesus Christ and that we will apply the atoning blood of Christ and allow the Holy Ghost to change us, to improve us, to help us become better as we love God, as we love others, and as we go about serving and sharing our blessings with others, that we all might have the chance to progress back, uh, to enter into covenants, to be sealed to Jesus Christ, to take upon us his name and become his. And I do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.